So in this in this uh, IG report that came out, like you find that uh, one of the things that they spent, I think, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on was a bus tour for Seema Verma. Like, what do you think happened on that bus tour? Well, didn't that get canceled? What, Is wait, that what what, what uh, it got canceled? It got canceled. But like, what do you think? What do you think? Like, I just I kept thinking of Spinal Tap for some reason that was like planned. Like CMS party bus. Her playing her playing like college towns like. Yeah. Now I'd like to invite you to like CMS regional office two intervention. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, man. maybe she's just going, yeah. Like doing dare, but about austerity <laughs> to schools dare, but it's like pro privatization. The least sexy bus tour. <laughs> Welcome to the Death Panel. Very excited for today's episode. If you'd like to support the show and get access to the weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Mm-hmm. Also, you get a discount on merch. Very good and merch. And our eternal gratitude and thanks. Real talk, though, we are like fully listener supported. So if you can support, please do. Before we get into our main topic today, let's go ahead and check in on the school reopening discourse that's been going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting uglier. We touched on this, I think, in maybe two weeks ago's patron episode. Mm -hmm. And this week we saw a pretty, I would say not surprising, but still gross to see a story that came out about a county sending out death liability waivers to parents. Um, Yeah, so it was a county in Missouri um, who they said in their defense, every county will be sending these and it was just for participation in sports. However, it was a waiver of liability for the Hazelwood, Missouri School District, which asked parents relinquish their rights to hold the district responsible even if a student's death is caused by the negligence (laughs) or carelessness of school staff it's really do you guys remember having to get permission slips signed when you were a kid oh yeah totally yeah and and that was like it was a you learn these words at a very early age i was like mom what does hold harmless and indemnify mean? You, know, like, you learn what your life is worth. That's what uh, that's what this says to me is that we'll see as the as the uh, discourse has portended the complete push ahead with the reopening of schools and the, basically the takeaway will be liability waivers. They're not just for field trips anymore. You know what I mean? Right. Like, well, I mean, it's also I think. It, it's worth noting, like, of course, school districts don't want to have to put this form out, right? What they want is for the state or the federal government to just give them a blanket uh, waiver. Uh, they don't want to have to, like, ask parents specifically to fill it out. They want it to be in the law. And, like, in California, there's already a bill going through, I think, supported by a Democratic state assembly person from Long Beach mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it'd be to Long just Beach. blanket give school districts um, liability. I mean, this sort of, I mean, it signals to me, I'm, I think we should just be prepared for this to just exist. This is going to happen (laughs) in one way or another in the next two months. Well, I mean, as we saw with like, and have been talking about pretty much constantly since the start of this pandemic, um, 
this has been a, a theme of, of creating liability shelters for the various oh, yeah. institutions that allow capital to keep flowing in various states. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we as we talked about on Monday's episode, there is a huge component of school in the United States that is part of the childcare network that is really essential for parents to be able to get back to work to quote unquote reopen the economy as some lawmakers would see fit. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling this is going to be a key component in every state's school reopening plan. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. like the, the person who, uh, like famously the, uh, the guy who started Getty images, um, is like quoted as saying that intellectual property is the oil of the 21st century, but actually liability waivers, I think quite literally <laughs> oh, in their ability to oh, grease yeah. the wheels for capital are the oil of the 21st yeah. century. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it's like you have two options. You could either make decisions that benefit public health, or you could have people sign a liability waiver before and make it sort of semi non-optional. Which is easier. Yeah, I mean, there was a very incredulous piece on, uh, I think, yesterday or a couple days ago, or maybe it was last week in the New York Times on um, Betsy DeVos, which was saying, oh, it's so surprising that Betsy DeVos, after a career of promoting distance learning (laughs) as an alternative to public schools, uh, is now the, you know, head honcho of pushing for the reopening of public schools as this essential thing. And even Trump tweeting, you know, it, it we know that anything but in-person learning is bad. Yeah. And, and the, the piece is just sort of incredulous, like, Oh, this is such a, such a surprise. And they interview these sort of conservative <laughs> policy experts, like, wow, she's really become, she's now just a sort of minion of the administration. But to me, it actually makes perfect sense. I, I don't see any contradiction, whatever. No. Uh, oh, yeah. It's uh, the private school, charter school virtual learning thing that's a that was a market making opportunity for her but now the market demands something else right <laughs> and 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 there will be opportunities for her to set up various i mean i have one sort of thought in my head which is you know so on the one hand you have this uh political imperative from the white house that you know around september 1st they want to claim some sort of victory in like we force schools to reopen and like the country is normal-ish. Right. Um, Normal-ish. Going in, they need that for the November. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the same uh, other sort of side of it is there's a difference. Like there's one way that they could solve that problem, which is, which is be like give schools tons and tons of money so they can just very quickly build out a bunch of infrastructure so it seems a lot more normal and safe right but they're mm-hmm. not doing that right no. <laughs> uh, because there's another constraint which betsy devos is like the best poster child of mm-hmm. which is they still have a preference for privatizing schools and actually forcing schools to reopen without giving them the resources to do so is one of the best scams in history to make <laughs> oh, yeah. sure yeah. That public schools seem to be failing well can i also uh, also when i I think it works doubly in their favor right because when uh like local either like school administrators or like local public officials eventually like midway through the semester decide okay we literally can't do this because it's a complete disaster and and they reclose schools they can essentially put it on like democrat school administrators 
uh, who like who like love the coronavirus and don't and don't want anybody to go to school as as like the villains of the story sort of right before uh, the election. So it really does the whole the whole process now really does like work work towards them. I hate Harry Potter metaphors. Oh, oh no! Sorry, actually, you know what? I, I hate. It. I hate. Sorry, I'm just gonna say I hate Harry Potter metaphors, and then I'm gonna stop. You can hate Harry mean, Potter too. You now. mean Turf Island? Yeah. <laughs> Turf, Turf Castle. Turf Island too. Yeah. Prisoner of Turf yeah. Island. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the bo- I mean, I think the bottom line here is the really unfortunate thing is it. Um, I think we we kind of danced around this on a, on a recent episode when we were talking about. Um, like updates on the on what the sort of virus process is as right, far right. as we like understand but we literally don't know mm-hmm. enough about so many aspects of the virus to make to like even say like suggest that we could make it safe for people to go back to school you right know what I, mean? I mean honestly like, can oh. we just put a thumb on not just the virus but the virus the disease process the transmission like the yeah. entire thing well right? i mean that's yeah. what i'm getting yeah, to exactly. which, is, which is that like so for example um two like two things come to mind immediately one is that yesterday um there was a big news hit around like the National Academies of Science, uh, Engineering and Medicine, like put mm-hmm. out a big thing saying like we should uh, bring students back to school. But then when you look at the report, their recommendations, which, you know, again, are based on a sort of generalized understanding of like what may be, uh, right. you know, so, right. like stuff, that, stuff that is like unproven to be like the limit of how you would need to control spread. Right. All of the recommendations like you look and they have some figures. That, uh, it's like for for a school district, it would be like one point eight million per thirty two hundred students or something. And if you look at Mm -hmm. like how many students there are in the United States. It's like you would need, as opposed to the actually existing (laughs) budget, like cuts that are going to be happening in States, you would need an additional like $31 billion put into schools to be able to even do these things. Um, And then I think a really good indicator is we've joked about how it's funny that people don't think like seem to not think that like children can get this disease or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And there was a, there was a, op-ed published in stat news this morning i won't i won't read from it but i will just say that basically it's a doctor who explains their process of learning or coming to understand that the public understanding of children not being able to like get the virus or whatever basically comes from the fact that like symptoms can often present just very differently but it it ends up still in an inflammatory response essentially which is one of these things where people start getting uh uh, like children get labeled as having uh misc like mis dash c or whatever and she to to explain this the article is structured around a couple of like hp lovecraft quotes what <laughs> yeah oh my god um so wow, i can't you know, wait I think to that read just this. like shows how much we're uh, there yeah that's that where, we, where are. we are well i mean especially like uh, that's such a good terrifying i can't wait to read that already and that's a really good point especially if you think about it in the context of like i think it was maybe just last week betsy devos was testifying in front of congress um, saying that actually increasing school size uh, or classroom size, increasing classroom size might actually benefit students and <laughs> testifying in the context of COVID basically saying, oh, it's OK that I kind of like was messing around and creating all these like loopholes on the uh, implementation side for getting students this emergency funding um, that was part of the CARES Act because like it's OK because you know good big classes are good for kids or so, it was just haven't oh, you ever God. heard haven't you ever heard about the need to fuck around and find out <laughs> <laughs> yeah teachers have been exactly. begging for bigger class sizes i i mean 
I, I hear it all the I time. I simply don't teach enough students at one time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, yeah. Give me more, coach. I can do it. Right. See the, like, see, the answer to COVID is to actually make them 180-person classes for elementary school, but <laughs> held in, in the parking lot of sports stadiums. Well, that would definitely be <laughs> Betsy DeVos's final solution for public schools, I'm sure. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. the, but, I mean, this is... Sorry. <laughs> the her, But there is a sort of... I mean, interesting thing, which is, um, and I, I'm, I'm sure that whatever ends up happening in the next few months with, um, public schools, whether or not they reopen, I mean, there will be some more money, you know, pumped out there somewhere, but DeVos is, she's one of these figures that, you know, is, is sort of like, has been comically, comically villainous from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's sort of underappreciated how uh, effective she has been mm-hmm. at being villainous. So the uh, recent thing, and I, I think that this will, you know, something like this could happen even again, is that when Congress passed the CARES Act, they said we're going to like give money to schools, uh, give money to uh, public schools under something called Title I uh, and Title A. And basically like what that does is under like the elementary and secondary education act, you have to get money out to public schools and then private schools. But the amount of money that they get is based on the number of students they have living in, in poverty. Right. Uh, and what she did was just sort of explicitly disregard that and uh, say, no, no, we're going to give uh, the amount of money to private schools based on the, just the number of students who are in them. So if you're like <laughs> a poor school district that has a very rich private school in it, that private school is going to get millions of dollars. I think the in Michigan, the uh, difference was that like non-public schools under like the actual reading of the law, private schools would get five point one million dollars. Under her guidance, they would get twenty one point six million dollars. Mm. So this is like she's she's after and has always been after a power grab for private schools. And like if there's any doubt this is going to continue, let me lay that uh, right now. It's it's continuing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's one thing that was pointed out by, I think, a state superintendent um, in Michigan, which is that basically the the difference here, that gulf of the change in this, uh, like based on this rule uh, in funding, like the money diverted out of public schools and into private schools would be enough to buy like 33,900 students PPE. Um, right. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and honestly, like whether it's um, rule change incompetence or just simply like the process of hiring outside contractors in really sketchy ways, as we saw with other death panel fave and uh, Trump administration crony Seema Verma um, today. Death panel listeners, uh, if you're new to the show and you don't know who Seema Verma is, welcome. Um, Strap in. We're excited to to have you here and we don't like her. Um, (laughs) This is one of those rare instances where one of our longtime villains uh, gets gets the real national spotlight for a moment. I know. I'm so proud of her for finally drawing the ire of more than just four people. Um, Yeah. No, well, but, four people know, and every person with a disability in all of America. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, exactly. the, the, no, SEMA is a real villain. And um, the inspector general of health and human services, I think, yep. the uh, yeah. sort of watchdog arm, has released a new report ruling that she has uh, broken rules on her publicity contracts. We started covering her sketchy contracts 
I would say maybe around like November of last year, she was hiring a bunch of private consultants to rehab her public image and like workshop her Twitter Mm -hmm. and place press stories about how she's like a hardworking mom in the Trump administration. Including one person, uh, Marcus Barlow, who is (laughs) de-identified in the HHS in the HHS report, despite having been very openly reported on by Politico already like a year ago. (laughs) Is that that the guy that they call Brian Smith in quotes? That's Brian Smith. (laughs) Uh, Brian Smith, who basically like worked for SEMA's consulting firm in Indiana, like then Mm -hmm. became basically was like brought on as a quote unquote consultant. But what that actually functionally meant was that he was just like operating as though he had like the power of any sort of like actual federal employee. Yeah, I mean, but this is this actually gets to the way that this story is covered. So there's a million OIG reports on the Trump administration and like the way that they get covered is oh, the Trump administration. It's just corrupt. Right. Right. But the it's important to know this is this doesn't start with the Trump administration. And these these problems are sort of endemic to the American way of government, mm-hmm. uh, which right. is that if you think about the, there were like I think $27 billion in contracts uh, that the federal government wrote in the last year, about 7 billion of those went to the agency that manages Medicare and Medicaid, mm-hmm. uh, CMS. And all of these relationships that the government has with private actors who are not, who don't have to follow typically any of the rules that, federal employees follow. They don't go through the same background checks. They don't go through any of the same clearance processes. They're not accountable in any of the same ways. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this sort of legal architecture that's supposed to prevent them from turning a public institution just into a feast for contractors and, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, just predatory, uh, predatory institutions. And that thing is called the federal acquisition regulation or FAR. Hmm. And basically FAR says, and and I think the flimsiness of this is kind of very telling about the way that capital is sort of logic is like brought inside the state. It says that, you know, what these people are not allowed to do, what these consultants are not allowed to do is they're, they're allowed to do anything except uh, inherently governmental functions. Hmm. And what is an inherently governmental function it's any activity that requires the exercise of discretion in applying government authority or law and uh, the making of value judgments and making decisions for government. Right. Well, hmm. what exactly do consultants do? <laughs> uh, in one way or another, it's, it's yes, okay, consultants can't like write the final rule, but they can basically tell you everything that's in it. Right. Um, or that they think should be in it. Or they can uh, write it, case, they just can't, they technically, I guess, can't publish it themselves they have to write it and then give it to somebody right right they can't yeah yeah yeah. and i mean there there are clear examples and and less clear examples like that line is sort of blurry Mm -hmm. on its face right but these cases are just so nakedly obviously the case that like sema comes in you can imagine you're like a public employee you've like been putting in your time at cms Mm -hmm. you're a civil servant you're not part of the administration and then they basically just bring in these consultants uh, and they're not just like the guys in office space who ask you what you, you do uh, exactly, <laughs> but they begin running the agency yeah, right. Right. and just telling you what to do. Well, and they just and, and the only difference is that they just hit publish as draft 
and then you have to hit publish. I mean, if you want to literally talk about hitting send on something, yeah. <laughs> uh, it literally lists like, um, again, Marcus Barlow, like tweeting stuff for SEMA, including getting, including getting in trouble, uh, because I guess internally within CMS, they didn't want the head of, uh, you know, they didn't want like the CMS administrator, um, to tweet about the opioid crisis at all. Um, so like the one, the one thing where there's like consternation in an email is like he gets in trouble basically for right. for tweeting something about the opioid crisis. Well, and Mar- Marcus Barlow too, um, as already mentioned, had worked for SEMA Verma's consulting firm, but um, then was blocked from taking a job at CMS because of background check reasons when she was like being brought into the administration. So she then hired him as a consultant and he so upset some of the like career civil servants that he was like supervising that there are also numerous emails in this report where you have different CMS like civil servants asking each other is it legal for a contractor to direct per- federal personnel? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, and then the, the other person responds going, like yeah, I was manager. wondering that too. Like, I'm not totally sure if this is legal. Yeah. Um, and then they, they then apparently, and later in the report, it says that sort of possibly SEMA instructed these people to almost like recant and say that they were just upset by dealing mm-hmm. with Brian's like, work style and that they didn't actually mean it that way which is absolutely wild mm-hmm. also like way to, well, yeah, way to this... put this in email guys good job good job no there's this like fictional fictional view that like oh well modern civilized countries like the united <laughs> states uh they they don't do patronage anymore mm. right? that's that's like right. they did that in like chicago in like the early 20th century but but we have civil service now we don't do that and I have news for you. We do do it. It's just called contracting. Oh, yeah. That's it. That's the, uh, that's just, that's just what we do. Yeah. Uh, instead of, that's how we give out political favors. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, just to, I guess not to linger too much on the report on the details in this report, uh, for like too, too long, but some of the other, uh, I don't know, big top line, big ticket things are stuff like they paid like $150,000 cancellation fee on some contract for a consultant, which is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, and this is it there, there is sort of this, um, domain where people are used to like, no, like, Oh, haha, like government spends like $80,000 on a ranch or, or whatever. Right. Like there's, mm-hmm. the, there's this like, you know, popular conceit of like a ton of government spending on stuff. But when you actually right. look at what the government spends on itself, like salaries for employees, et cetera, that like that cancellation contract, which itself, when they audited it, um, you know, the, it, like the documents that CMS, um, the, it, when you read the report, it makes it sound like when, the uh, inspector general's office asked CMS like for documentation of why there was a $150,000 cancellation fee for this consulting contract. They basically, it sounds like CMS just basically like wrote like IOU, et cetera, like on a piece of paper and like handed it. It's not, not literally, right. but like <laughs> they, they presented a document that like was not signed, was not on the business's letterhead, was just like, looked like someone had just typed it up or something to make, to make documentation like for a this. It, that, it sounds like <laughs> it. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not saying that's not, that's what From it the is. Desk of. It just sounds like in the report, that's what it sounds like. Right. Um, the, you, yeah. you couldn't get a prescription filled at a pharmacy with it. No. Yeah. yeah it's like, it, right. It, it's like, it's like, saying did you really have a prescription for that and then presenting like a piece of paper that says like like it's hard to doctor oz hereby prescribed to you one 
yeah. prednisone. Like it's more <laughs> it's more difficult to get. Yes, he did have a prescription for that. It's yes. more difficult to get my zero dollar copay generic injectable chemotherapy drug than it is to get one hundred and fifty thousand dollars from CMS right. as a consultant for but a also, cancellation. And fee. also, uh, in another in another thing that was highlighted in this report, apparently, if you're I don't know a consultant hired to like hire a bus company, um, you can get paid <laughs> twice maybe, and no one will mention or, or notice, and there isn't. <laughs> paperwork on it um also it's not necessarily proven that pay like payment was done twice but it really seems like it um <laughs> you know it's just I mean, uh I we mean, found some ways fought fraud and abuse basically finally finally the, the rich the, yeah. oh, i mean the rich and probably too on the nose and obvious to even mention aspect of all of this is that the very things that sema is using these people to promote her uh cachet uh, for doing are putting administrative burdens on poor people who are yeah. just trying to get uh, Medicaid and mm-hmm. and accusing poor people sort of on Twitter at, you know, of of waste, fraud and abuse uh, just in a blanket way, demonizing and criminalizing uh, the poor. And it made me think we did have some Twitter interactions uh, with her, <laughs> we were, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. quote tweeting her like, you know that one of these contractors had to look at those. Oh, totally. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, there's a reason I don't personally quote tweet or tweet at SEMA ever because I'm frankly I'm afraid of political retaliation. Because frankly, that is a real concern. Yeah, without yeah. It, without yeah. Medicare, I would not. I would be really fucked. So yeah, yeah. We don't. Yeah, it's one of those things that like seems like it would be illegal. But, you know, yeah, you know, it also seems like it would be illegal to hire Marcus Barlow, but Brian Smith, yeah, Brian Smith, exactly. <laughs> if it's Brian Smith, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, Brian, Brian Smith will tweet at Seema Verma instead. It's funny because in a lot of ways, this is just the consultants like Marcus Barlow, Brian Smith are are just actually the sort of bottom of the barrel of these sort of consultants too. There was a ProPublica report that came out about McKinsey's COVID contract pricing earlier this week, which Mm -hmm. was a ton of fun to dive through, but it basically... The creme de la creme of the the vultures. Yeah. (laughs) And also I think one of those funny moments where sometimes we're just like a little too on the pulse so we actually pull the trigger and talk about something in like let's say a segment in the patron episode this week that we released on Monday uh, at at length about, you know, how firms like McKinsey operate um, as consultants while also, you know, being main policy drivers for policies that strip the state of let's say the the very personnel who they then need mm-hmm. to hire consultants <laughs> to replace yeah. Yeah. in an event like I don't know a pandemic um <laughs> And uh, yeah, so this was really funny because then I think just like a day after we released that. Yeah, I mean, so if you if you're if you're a patron and you've listened to Monday's episode, um, you'll you'll this will sound familiar to you. If you're not a patron, highly suggest becoming one and checking it out. But, mm-hmm. you know, we talked a lot about like sort of state and local budgets and the coronavirus response and the way that um, McKinsey and other consulting firms are factoring in sort of stepping in to um, fill holes caused by decades of, of uh, not defunding, but just like well, dismantling, yeah. I would say more dis- dismantling piece by piece through funding. It's a real chicken or egg situation. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> our, our state and local governments. And, and so then uh, yesterday, July 15th on tax day, 
three days after we have this conversation, yeah, a ProPublica report drops with a deep dive into a lot of the McKinsey COVID contracts. And I just sort of want to get us started by um, reading this quote about their relationship with an official in Miami-Dade, Florida, Mm -hmm. who says, basically, they are compiling data for us. A top official in Florida's Miami-Dade County wrote in an in an internal email obtained by ProPublica, quote, and putting it in pretty formats. That contract was up uh, was for up to a month of work with a price tag of $568,000 and the confusing set of reopening guidelines that emerged with McKinsey's help has been widely panned. So um, one of the things that we haven't talked about on the show is this document that Miami-Dade County put out where they had... Oh my God. Like, the new normal thing. The, yeah, it yeah. was called the new normal and it hinged on these like archetypes that they were going to say as flags, which is just these five archetypes which is borrowing from like Jungian psychology and a trope of McKinsey's own branding that they just half-assed reorganized and sold to Miami-Dade yeah, County. Yeah because at the same time um, if you have the same problematic uh, compulsions like I do to check the McKinsey and company uh, website <laughs> with with any frequency, frequency. Um, yeah around the same time in March they were like they were publishing reports with this overall branding in general anyway like the new normal like COVID-19 the new normal um, which now has been rebranded as the next normal because they're you know they're trying to make <laughs> futurist prescriptive uh, you're now next yeah. recommendations mostly for business management reasons but they yeah. do mm-hmm. actively advertise their uh like public and governmental uh services which i guess they usually used to not really advertise even and in fact sometimes they're explicitly forbidden from doing so right interesting yeah exactly so yeah. they've like, really turned a they've really turned a corner i think i mean i think i think coronavirus has provided a, a new a new frontier for mckinsey in terms of their encroachment into like consulting for state and local and federal government frankly you know this i think this internal email from Florida is really telling because my sense is that and you and you get the sense in this report that Florida was not super appreciative of all the money that it put into it. But but five hundred and sixty eight thousand dollars for what came out. It just it's like how many admit that could be like, you know, I don't know, like 10 public health officials. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At least one of them is like they're doing the work like four of them are doing the work that I was doing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, right. I think, yeah. Uh, I was going to, I was actually going to read that McKinsey is quote, doing the research. I am too burned out at this point to do. Um, adding, she was quite flattered that it took an entire team of high price consultants to replace her. Right. Um, exactly. Although these, yeah, it's like 150 or $160,000 a week per consultant or something. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, but. it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And so the, one of the things I get into is like the sort of, uh, contract pricing and, and stuff like that. But, but also the fact that McKinsey has been able to negotiate several non-compete contracts with like the VA, the air force. And it was all based on this idea that they have this centralized database of essentially government data from all these different government sources that they're contracted with. And they can supposedly their selling point is that they have an edge on the government because they talk to all the different governments and they have the data centralized so they can provide a service that you would think that the government actually would do itself. But it doesn't. McKinsey does it. Well, and absolutely. 
and the and the funniest part of it is that clearly where was it in their contract with the VA they kept presenting slide decks right that said like uh you know like data yet to come in the next yeah. few days yeah. and then when asked about why they Version didn't have update coming right <laughs> like with like basically just like like yeah you just throw in the good placeholder slide it's totally fine just throw in the placeholder slide and then like you know when asked right they blame the va for not providing them with the data (laughs) that they needed to then show the va the data like right i sort of wonder about that right because (laughs) one level um or at least that they were providing it in this particular instance yeah i mean there's there's sort of like the logic of i guess like the logic of contracting out right is at some point if you've divested the state of enough resources they're going to be private firms that are like better at doing what you would ultimately want the state to do okay well, like they're, that's sta- a problem they're in its staffed own right. up already i mean that's that the, seems that, like the that's, main that's thing. a problem in its own right right but it's actually a separate problem from the one of what happens when when the computers take over okay right what happens <laughs> when the uh you have these people and it's and, and they're actually doing more than just sort of like uh the work that an intern would do or something like that but they're actually this what they are doing is shaping the face of the state mm-hmm uh, right. for, you know, most people. So like the, the thing about the Miami Dade example was that, I mean, this is a very important state function, uh, telling people about the different phases of reopening and it, the, the phases of reopening now. And again, I think this can be correlated to the extent to which these consultancies have, you know, worked their way into government. I, I never talk about like a reopening phase with somebody. It, Except if it's the butt of a joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, oh, I guess we're in phase green now. Or fa- No one knows what these things mean. Yeah. Um, and like the thing that they had in Miami-Dade County. Which flag are we located at? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing that they had in Miami-Dade County is like they have these different flags and each flag is a different phase. I mean, it's very tarot card like. But then <laughs> what B was mentioning, the archetypes. The di- Okay. It's just you're just saying that there are different kinds of industries and different kinds of things that have different levels of like human interaction <laughs> and rather than just like saying like, here is who we think can open now here. Like rather than like making specific messages, like, ah, yes, we're going to have these archetypes yes. and <laughs> the flags well, as if, as if like a, you know, your local uh, USA Today affiliate newspaper would like print this and anyone would even understand what any of this meant. Right. Well, also <laughs> it has a little bit of that thing of like when you, uh, you know, someone, let's say some uh, amateur Twitter sleuth going through a, a Wikipedia article and being like, I found, I found these 10 things. There's, uh, there's, uh, if you look at the history of this, there's, there's something called a, like a healthcare industry. Let me, let me uh, put, put that in my report. Let me, let me, let me rebrand that as a uh, biological maintenance sector. Like, right. you know what I mean? I, but, but the other, the, I was just going to say the other thing, Phil, the difference between like also having a, an intern do the kind of work that McKinsey is doing that you rightly say is like shaping the face of government. It's probably if you think about it in a lot of ways better to have the intern doing that because the intern doesn't have like other clients who would benefit from particular outcomes of uh uh like reports that that they would be generating do you know what i mean like i think that i think that this like the question of um you know the the 
data, for instance, even the, like the data that the state is able to keep and collect is a huge factor in this too, because it's not, it's not even necessarily a completely a function of who is like, who's doing it, who's being paid. And also like then what that person is trained for, because yeah, I would take random, whatever intern on the street, who's like tasked with like working for the government right? Um, or low level employee working for the government over any, like just what's like slimy fuck who just happened to graduate from an MBA and fall upwards into a McKinsey consultant gig, right? <laughs> right. But, um, but at the end of the day, it's like McKinsey, as we kind of like have, you know, have men- yeah. mentioned a little bit, McKinsey has been able to over the years, uh, you know, over its decades of having, uh, you know, like in the post-war period, like accumulated so many government contracts, like amassed mm-hmm. all of this, like, like all this different, um, data, which it always then keeps as like proprietary stuff, which then you see, you know, some of the, much of the reasoning, uh, that like the VA, for example, gave for, uh, taking out like a $12 million contract to start. A no bid contract. No yeah. bid contract to start with McKinsey was because, well, they have immediate access to this data, which right. like we simply do not. We don't have yeah. time to, we don't have time to take bids. We have we not have been to... empowered to re- retain this data. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. this is something that you would think that the, that the government would have, even if not the government on the general population, but surely at least the VA would have, right? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, there's a sort of, um, I wouldn't call it an, an iron rule, but it's, it's pretty, pretty repetitive uh, in 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 the world, which is every time you cut a government function uh, in order to spare the all holy deficit, and you think <laughs> that that's going to be just a deadweight loss of spending, it comes back to you tenfold mm-hmm. uh, because the demand you don't do away with the demand for services exactly that way. Right. All you do is create a market for services that then the state has to purchase. And that's, I mean, I think it's the case with um, a number of, I think actually in um, earth sciences, NASA, there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, they, they simply can't do anymore simply because all of the knowledge is private. I think that's such a good point. Cause I, I keep when I'm, when I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around this, I keep thinking about this as the, like almost the ultimate irony of the legacy of like the Reagan Thatcherite era, actually, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. if you think about, you know, if you think about the, the big, uh, that big, um, argument or the rhetorical flourish, right. Of like, I'm from the government, I'm here to help is like the most terrifying, <laughs> they're the most terrifying words in the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, Ultimately, like all that has changed is like it's swapped to I'm from McKinsey and I'm here to help. Right. Because they like these these you've stripped out the ability of like, um, you know, government to be proactive about things. You've stripped out like uh, so many of the the possibilities for, uh, you know, state, local and federal government to do like to do what their mandate is supposed to be. But then but then like certain things do end up uh, either having to get done or having a having a real, uh, you know, force behind them to be, to be like served to the people. Right. Right. So ultimately Mm -hmm. it ends up, you know, you can, you can pretend that you've shrunk the state or whatever, but all that you've ultimately done is just sort of like created this parasitic organism that rests outside of it, which you would think would be, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I guess it's, I guess it's totally logically consistent with a <laughs> conservative agenda, but you know, you well, know. I mean, if you think about it, like in the fifties, the idea that in terms of like, at least maybe in a management level that businessmen should, should supplant and replace civil servants in terms of just being the right types of people to manage people and implement public policy. Right. This is like mm-hmm. an idea 
that McKinsey itself is largely responsible for pushing. Um, mm-hmm. The the ProPublica report cites a 1960 report that McKinsey wrote to NASA. The pitch was quote uh, quote Free Enterprise Society of the U.S. dictates that industry should be given as extensive a role as possible. And they go on to note that after that, basically by 1961. About half of the administrators at NASA start turning to private outside contractors and a large proportion of their work increasingly year after year becomes privatized. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's they are they are directly benefiting from this, but also at the same time, like the function of their the way that they work also creates more work for the civil servants who are still on the job, who are being paid much less as well. Mm -hmm. Like they in, you know, like one of the things that that they've done is that in terms of like procurement, they keep sending POs like to state and local governments that are getting rejected left and right for simple errors, just in terms of the way of like, you've seen a lot of this like anecdotally, like from, um, you know, beat reporters like uh, city and state New York and stuff like that, where, you know, you've got consultants creating active waste and busy work for civil servants who are then being taken away from whatever procurement tasks they're doing to manage the delegated work of consultants being paid probably three times what they make in a year, you know, and, and it's, it's a, it's like an intentionally self-destructive cycle. Right. And at the end of the day, the end goal is like total privatization. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I want to be more specific about that though. The end goal is the production of or the the reproduction of a particular kind of capitalist state, one in which any opportunity, because like what is what is in a way this the, I guess, sort of accomplishment of um, the the, the creation of like a bureaucratic civil service. I guess you could say that it provides some, you know, what Nikos Balanzas would call like relative autonomy Mm -hmm. from capital right mm-hmm. so at the very least it's not just a repository of uh like capital's uh interests but you know what you do as you create these as as the boundary between government and capital becomes increasingly like porous is uh there's no there there's a lot less that uh sort of slippage uh, mm-hmm. even between the these sort of uh, demands of market actors and uh, what the state is, is capable uh, of doing. And, and I think at the end of the day, it's these McKinsey people, they're not, they're not thinking about public health all the time. They they might have a public health as part of their portfolio, (laughs) um, but that's not necessarily uh, what they've committed um, their, their lives to. And, And if you talk to anybody who's worked to for a firm like this, and they have any sort of credibility, they will tell you that at some point it felt weird to them that at the ripe age of 24, they should be telling the good people of the Crest Corporation uh, (laughs) how to make toothpaste differently. Uh, There was something unseemly about that and Mm -hmm. that they left. Um, And, uh, but the issue is the money's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, as we talked about on Monday's episode, if we had a different, um, a sort of non-predatory approach to financing uh, higher education in the United States, maybe 24-year-olds wouldn't be forced to go work for McKinsey to pay for school. But I mean, yeah, 
I didn't mention this in the moment, but I, I, I think it's like it's ov- it's obviously that, but it's also like obvious it's our entire political economy, right? right? No, because exactly. Because if if the like there are so many different ways that you could square that circle, just like sl- like move the sliders, basically. If you're trying to, if you're just basically trying to adjust it within the existing system, right? Like mm-hmm. obviously, I think we just have to com- like we do have to completely like rebuild our political economy. I think, but the um, but you know, so you could say like, oh, it's like people have so much student debt. It's also just, I think, you know, I think that there are a bunch of people, especially the type of people who are going to end up at a McKinsey job who are like, okay, what's my, what is my, uh, what's my, what's my shortest glide path to a six figure job? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's going to be very difficult for the United States to switch off of the blood of the poor standard. Um, and I understand this will be like very difficult, but I think, you know, dealing it's with our, our blood of the young yeah. addiction is part of the problem. And it's it's actually quite funny that that you have like I feel like just sort of McKinsey just also completely um, getting in trouble left and right as well, that mm-hmm. they are actually kind of like, I think, struggling right now to like prove their worth because it seems like they haven't actually produced great work product and after decades of being very sort of secret actually um they're suddenly like being spoken about and even as already pointed out cited in some of the documents despite decades of strict practices of like a non-disclosure agreement where the mm-hmm. client doesn't say they've hired McKinsey and McKinsey does not reveal its clients. They are cited in a public memo from the governor of New York as having worked on it like because they want more bi- they, I mean they, they probably want more business, right? right? I mean, like, that's a way for them. But it could be it could be a double-edged sword. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> right. I mean, definitely. Once you start, once you, like, get kind of greedy enough in, in a certain way and you, and you, and you, you know, you, you start taking contracts that are, like, necessarily going to need to be out in the public, you better deliver at least something, at you least know, bear to, competence. Right, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. Bear competence to demonstrate your worth because otherwise people are going to get mad. A little bit more than a health, uh, public health qualification that is like, you know, I... Uh I really, I really sat there and I spent, I was enrolled, I was, uh, I was enrolled <laughs> in the, uh, you know, man- managing public health expectations at the Wharton school course for about a week. And I, you know, I dropped it, but I did go to one course. Um, I yeah. did go to one meeting. That's, <laughs> Wait, man, you know, but- <laughs> I, I, I love managing public health expectations. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's just a great that course they, title. You got that into being, I feel like that's, take, take some <laughs> time, real. take some, sometime just like flip through high level uh, course catalogs at management schools. I mean, you know, that's not yeah. without outside the realm of possibility. <laughs> I guess um yeah. Yeah, I, I majored Maybe. in managing expectations at the yeah. Wharton School. <laughs> I mean, that's like that yeah, that That's no, galaxy isn't that, right there. No, what an no MBA joke. Is? That, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. An MBA is basically managing expectations, but well, also I wish yeah. we didn't have a you know, they say it's like it takes three three sort of points to make a the three points to make a uh, shape of some kind. Uh, what do they say? What's the line? They say uh, McKinsey's a, a pyramid scheme. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. It takes three <laughs> points to make a pyramid. Uh, and unfortunately, we have a third story that uh, is really emblematic of this and probably is even more consequential. Oh, yeah. Probably. Do you want to talk about the CDC's new... Um, 
new data hmm. contractor, Phil. This got this got a lot of coverage, but the um, so there was like an announcement this week from the White House Coronavirus Task Force um, Authority, of which is seemingly dubious. Uh, <laughs> but they asked hospitals to stop sending their data on utilization, so their data on like their capacity, their their beds, their ventilators to the CDC where they have been sending it Mm -hmm. Um, and instead to send it to HHS itself and really to send it to something, uh, a health data firm in of all places, Pittsburgh uh, called teletracking, which I can only assume is where the signal in Videodrome is being sent from. (laughs) Um, And so there's a lot of panic, a lot of panic over this week because as of today, the page where this information is supposed to be available to the public is just blank. Yeah. Uh, and so people are freaking out like, oh, we're okay. Not going to know this information anymore. Um, but it's, I think, I think the story is sort of being reported in a, a sort of opaque way. That's like missing mm-hmm. the real problem here yeah. <laughs> uh, at, at the very least, uh, which is that the, it's not just that this is like the Trump administration trying to centralize all of the data on coronavirus. If you hear people saying that, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, because most of the surveillance data, vi- virologic tests, uh, outpatient and ED uh, information, mortality data, all of that is still rests with the CDC. Right. right. Mm-hmm. This is one slice of the data. It's an important slice, uh, but it's just one slice. The problem here is that the agency that's supposed to be taking this over, which is a part of the HHS called the Assistant Secretary for uh, Preparedness and uh, Response, the guy who runs that is just about the worst person uh, ever to be uh, doing this. This (laughs) guy was implicated in a complaint, again, very similar to SEMA, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. of participating in multiple schemes to funnel contracts to politically connected companies. Mm. and uh, this is included uh, in this it w- were contracts related to N95 masks. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a person who for whom like government, it's pretty clear, uh, appears to be uh, a oh. way of funneling money to his friends. Yeah. <laughs> but then you find out that it's not even possible for through this system for uh HHS to get the data automatically through mm-hmm. administrative data sent from the hospitals, people in hospitals will now have to go in and punch in the data manually mm. right, uh, to send it to uh, to send it to HHS. So, like, this is the great service that teletracking was offered a no bid contract ASPR for ten million dollar uh, contract, ten million dollars mm-hmm. um, to just receive data on a spreadsheet. I mean, effectively, basically, yeah, data that's actually creating more. So the whole the creating whole more work the, for other it, people by simply receiving data, the whole administration, their whole guidance was premised on this idea that like hospitals and other facilities have been asking for us to streamline uh, where they send data to. And, you know, I'm sure uh, that complexity in the way that this data is reported is a thing mm-hmm. and that it's confusing and there's a, and it's burdensome uh, for facilities to send this no doubt. Um, however, uh, now what we're doing is we're, we're actually adding another layer uh, of administrative burden uh, to uh, facilities by forcing them to report data to yet another source. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 
But I mean, again, as long as it doesn't, it, as long as it doesn't sort of attract the ire of the public eye or whatever, or right. or as long as it's just you know the it like looked at as individual actors uh, as being the problem, right? As like Martin Shkreli is uh, being like mm-hmm. you know uh, like oh people like pharma is bad because of individual actors like Shkreli or whatever, as opposed to mm-hmm. like pharma being a thing that uh, promotes the creation of them. You know, it's like when I was, when we were talking about McKinsey, I was just thinking like in some ways for consultants like McKinsey, actually the, the attention I think probably brought to them in the public eye by the candidacy of Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, (laughs) was probably a huge double-edged sword and actually might be one of the reasons why they're trying to like reorient their image publicly (laughs) because I mean when stuff starts coming out about a candidate and it seems that apparently basically what he was doing was like you know herbal life but in like foreign governments or something you know (laughs) Um, it doesn't doesn't look so good Uh, yeah, no, actually, that's true. I also, it seems like their bankruptcy department has been a, a major sore on their on their backside, which um, actually, this might be a good point for us to pivot to discussing the impending, um, as of this time of recording, nine days until the um, pandemic unemployment Yikes. assistance expires on yeah. the 25th of July. Is Jeff mm-hmm. Stein just going to start tweeting like the ring? It's just going to be nine days then. <laughs> is going to be the countdown <laughs> totally yeah no and and um there has been some a little slow drip of some indication of a a um willingness and openness to come to a bipartisan compromise uh on this deal which makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up personally Love when mom and dad are getting along <laughs> yeah but, i mean what's interesting is I, I do feel like a lot of this has been uh and as we've talked about sort of privately before like i feel like a lot of this has been covered as this sort of will they won't they thing like yeah. are they gonna pass something to are they gonna pass something to uh you know uh, like it will will there, will there be a you know cares to or whatever at all will they arrive at anything they're on vacation like will will they act whereas like actually it seems like right in the public eye if you know where to look i guess there's pretty clear indications of what it appears to be that they're talking about. Yeah. Right. If mm-hmm. they have red lines like McConnell and Pelosi let you know that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And if they have demands, they'll let you know that too. Right. So building off of that, you can sort of, there are about three things that are firming up. Yeah. And there's one thing where we just, we know that something will happen, but we don't know whether or not it'll be that it will matter. Right. Um, one thing that's certain is we're going to get probably another one time twelve hundred dollar uh, federal stimmy uh, check. Right. Uh, uh, a Trump check mm-hmm. is how yeah. it will ultimately be framed. Yeah. Um, on UI, there's not going to be a six hundred dollar extension of the six hundred dollar mm-hmm. uh yeah, Nancy Pelosi sure. basically said, like, signaled yesterday that, um, like, she doesn't really care that much about protecting the full uh, $600 boost to unemployment, but she does want to fight for added OSHA protections, basically. Because, um, cool. yeah, the priority definitely, it's great that the priority for both parties is just sending people back to work. That's awesome. More, great. But more if, yeah, things for it. No, but I think, okay, so what did they say that they're actually going to do? It's like a $300 extension for mm-hmm. three months. Why three months? 
Mm. Right? <laughs> we all know why three months. What happens in three months? The election. Yeah. So you get Allegedly. to pass something else right before <laughs> you go kidding. up for re-election, obviously. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting because you've seen a lot of people start to get really upset um, about the short term nature of this because they feel frustrated that they they feel that Pelosi is forcing them to wait till November um, in order to receive any uh, assistance or support. But it's it's also like, I think, just incredibly short sighted because we were, I think, hoping that the virus would be less contagious during the summer, which is clearly not happening. And we are going to be <laughs> no. set up to go into winter in the well, by absolute. We, I mean, I think you mean what Congress? Or no, something? I mean, the United States is going yeah. to be set up to go into winter in the absolute worst possible position. If this UI is not extended at its full $600 a week, like, right. We right. will be You'll... fucked come October well, if they don't do this. Also, from what I hear, one of the Republican demands on UI is say so you have that three hundred dollar extension for three months. But in addition to that, in addition to that, yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this. <laughs> there will be a bonus if you go back to work. Mm-hmm. <sighs> now, I don't really understand how that works, right? Given that this is unemployment insurance, but um, there I, you go. I also don't understand who benefit like like who who benefits from that not even even in the like disgusting calculus of of sort of like you know pr spin and like and corporate patronage so that walmart employees like must go back to oh my god that is what they're gonna do i mean that's the yeah, that's I mean, I, I do feel like in a lot of ways, this back to work bonus is um, and yeah, is very much an extent to sort of quell the dissonance of um, the fact that like a lot of people are making a lot more than they were at their jobs because of the added six hundred dollars a week. So in order to cushion that blow of the obvious gap between um, people's take home pay uh, at their job and um what they're getting on unemployment they're gonna just what throw some money well, at I mean, it yeah i mean it's a simple calculation it's like a very simple dialectic to to yeah. to game out really it's like they right. i mean oh, yeah because the whole because their whole thing i mean the the entire reason have been like one of the reasons they've been giving for like bitching about the economy uh is this thing of like you not not having like proper incentives to go back to work so mm-hmm. in like in their minds this is like just gonna the, in their minds like a back to work bonus fixes the economy somehow Ooh, because right. you just you're they're trying to man i think i assume they're trying to manufacture demand which is not so gonna is, is so I stupid i don't even think so, they're trying to manufacture demand oh really? i think they know that they can't i know i think that they know that they can't do that what they're trying to do is manufacture a decrease in the line being the unemployment line right the, uh, uh, the indicator Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think ironically, I'm not really sure that that works as an electoral strategy. Um, I think that if they really wanted, to, if they were really thinking in a purely sort of electoral calculus way, they would have already done something. I mean, you could have, if you really cared about that, you could have passed uh, Jayapal's uh, 
uh, right, paycheck, paycheck guarantee. guarantee. That would have brought down the unemployment line significantly oh, in the totally. quarter right. when it really would have mattered for people's perceptions of the economy prior to the election. Right. But I think now they're just sort of scrambling and doing whatever they can. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't have uh, been in this election, situation. Hoping that it works. Yeah, we wouldn't have been in the situation where it appears as though, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like every, um, I feel like every Thursday I am just like, are they just sending that push notification again? Is it exactly? It's, <laughs> it's always like 1.3 million new, uh, new unemployment claims. And I'm like, they, uh, are they writing a new story at this point or is it just, <laughs> you just know, hit refresh and send I think it they every just week. Have it on, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, push. <laughs> I think they just have it on auto publish and up, it updates the dates every week. Yeah. Well, I no, mean, and it's it's also worth mentioning that like what better slap in the face to the um, frontline workers who have been working throughout this entire pandemic with basically no hazard pay for the most part across the exactly. board than to offer the people who have been laid off a bonus that they will be ineligible for because they were essential workers like grocery mm-hmm. store clerks who on average I think make like $12 an hour in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Uh, just saying, just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. I mean, also we should talk about the fact that this is all coming against the backdrop of McConnell seemingly actually getting liability protection for businesses it literally seems like nancy pelosi is just like plunging headlong into like accepting uh liability protection for businesses in exchange for three like three hundred dollar a week three month extension it just seems well like literally the the, bargain the dumbest fucking situation happened it'll also probably include osha protections yeah uh, great I think that that's cool that, that's her that's her trade-off well yeah of course it, it sounds great on paper but then you realize how osha's run right now no, exactly. Exactly. yeah no precisely. Yeah, Vince was definitely being facetious that's like sorry saying, that like, was oh, yeah. uh, like oh we're gonna add we're gonna add covid protections to the ada um as right, part of cares yeah. too like <laughs> cool we can't enforce it like great awesome mm-hmm. love to have <laughs> another uh yeah protection well, d- on paper that happy 30th anniversary actually oh my god wait is the 25th also the 30th anniversary of the ada july 26th 1990 yeah july so 26th. the day after the ada anniversary day before oh is, is the expiration wow so let's take this all together though if we have we got the 1200 dollars one-time payment we've got 300 dollars extension for three months that they'll have the election you know afterwards we got the work bonus liability shield and osha protections Question mark on state and local aid. I think we'll probably get something. Whether or not it's mm-hmm. really going to be enough is big question mark. I have no clue. I do know that some Senate Republicans are into the idea, but I just don't know what the dollar figure is. So, like, we got all of that. Probably schools are going to be a, a large number of schools are going to be forced to reopen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where does this what what is the world going to look like in October? Not good, guys. Not good. Yeah. I mean, especially considering the fact and the stuff like that we're now, s- but worse. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, especially considering the stuff that we're seeing in terms of like um, people who maybe had COVID three months ago who are now all of a sudden testing PCR positive again and yeah. showing symptoms mm-hmm. again with worse cases. And now I will That's say fun. these are anecdotal cases. But frankly, we know so little about COVID actually that um, a lot of the successful treatment like delaying intubation, proning, steroids, et cetera, like came through uh, just sort of desperate doctors trying things and anecdotal direct experience, which is not usual for the medical community. So I feel like it's kind of um, 
it's going to be absolutely brutal if they continue to operate like it's an austerity jubilee as we go into the colder months, um, oh, yeah. especially mm-hmm. if, if well, this... And sometimes, like as in the case of uh, the predominance of reinfections, it can change how you think of something when you hear an anecdote so many times. Right. And and, and I think it's worth, I don't want to freak anyone out, but I think it's worth pointing out that our assumption that there is a possibility for herd immunity is based on um, data from SARS-CoV-1. But um, actually coronaviruses tend to not, um, as a species of virus, not actually provide long-lasting immunity because uh, they need to be able to survive by reinfecting people like the common cold. There are certain Mm -hmm. types of, you know, so coronaviruses in general don't tend to provide lasting immunity. So uh, we have two assumptions, right? And what we've gone with is the assumption that benefits capitalism, not the one that benefits and is the most cautious assumption taking into consideration public health only. Right. And, yeah. and and that coupled with just the perverse factors that are um, being taken into consideration in these quote unquote stimulus bills or whatever the fuck they're going to spin it as in New York Times. Well, yeah, I mean, and this is kind of the thing, right, which is also which is why it's so frustrating. The um, the thing that uh, Phil mentioned, actually, which is the like um, three, the like for a period of three months, meaning you know, you like you're ex, you're extending or change, you know, you're whatever they're implementing will be like, OK, we're going to we're going to do this in another three month incremental. Right. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. huge problem with that is that much like the last time, uh, right. which is now putting us into this moment of like a huge uncertainty, uh, like just base indeterminacy that as Phil wrote about actually in his guest post on uh, oh yeah, and uh, on Nathan's blog today, like, le- and as we talked about last week on the show, like, led to states, uh, you know, led led to states being motivated to reopen faster than they should have, right? Mm-hmm. Like, all all of these factors come together as like, I mean, literally in March there was an arbitrary date set of like, well, we think it'll probably be a couple months, it'll be fine, yeah, then we'll figure it out, you know, <laughs> right? Or like, we'll we'll deal Easter. with it later, we'll do it within a couple months, and then because that expectation is set. And because they so poorly manage how they even talk about it and how they try to wield it politically, even Mm -hmm. then we come to the end of that and it's like, oh, uh, yeah, we can probably lick this in another three months. No, (laughs) right? (laughs) like this is just not like we don't even know. Like there are so many indeterminate factors here. And like you can have someone like uh, Anthony Fauci going around and saying like, oh, yeah, expect like it's totally conceivable that we'd have a working <laughs> vaccine within the year. Like we don't know. And what's it's to not, prevent them from pulling a Wisconsin? I mean, it's con- it's right. It's conceivable that yeah, it's anything is conceivable if you can think of it. Like yeah, f- I could I can assume that f- fucking uh you know the next whatever CARES Act is going to be perfect and and <laughs> uh you know like have no problems whatsoever. But like, should I? Probably not. Yeah. What yeah. I can I guess what I can say is the death panel is here for you for all your consulting needs. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, we do Futurists. charge extorbor- exorbitant amounts. Um it's but you're five dollars a month at patreon.com slash death <laughs> I mean I do think yeah. so like in thinking about this, I keep actually thinking back to Nathan's uh, argument about what disciplines policymakers and mm-hmm. his argument is like it's not elections, it's massive civil unrest. Um sustained right and like the fear of that might actually have you know something to do and 
my thought, my extension of that logic here is that congressional leaders are trying to figure out just how much they have to do to avoid that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they, they're trying to figure out what's the point, uh, what's the threshold point where they, if they just do that much and no more, they'll be able to sort of tamp down on massive civil unrest. And I think what their, their, their hope or what they're guessing is like, this will be, this will be the sure shot. This will be enough. But I think that that's a very, that's a very contingent uh, proposition because if you look around the States, a lot of States that had eviction moratoria, they mm-hmm. are lifting those. A lot of States never had them in the first place. The virus right. is getting worse. More businesses are probably going to close. I mean, I, you know, government, these people aren't perfect at forecasting, right? They're no better than we are in a lot of ways. And, um, they might err, right? They might make a mistake because mm-hmm. this very well might not be enough. I mean, the state local aid thing is interesting because, because the, the scale of the decline is so huge. I mean, uh, right. the number of public jobs lost alone, uh, is gigantic <sighs> and public services that are delayed. I mean, infrastructure, there will be infrastructure problems uh, that emerge because of delayed repairs. Um, the, the possibilities are actually very dense that there will be unrest prior to the elections. And (laughs) they're not, they're not like, they're not thinking about that. I mean, and especially if like governors don't like Mike DeWine the other day was just like, Oh yeah. Goldman Sachs said, if you wear a mask, we're good. If we love each other and wear a mask, we're all good. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, so wait, Phil, essentially what you're, what you're telling, telling lawmakers is just like, roll the dice friendo and just see, see what happens Fuck around and find out. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, it's, I'm saying that it's, it's very difficult. Like the CBO will tell you what the deficit effect of legislation will be. Maybe it'll even tell you what the effect on GDP will be or jobs. Mm-hmm. If you ask it to, what it can't tell you really uh, is how certain, how certain you should be about that. I mean, there's a lot of caveats <laughs> right now. Um, and it also can't tell you about sociology. Right. Um, well, there's as no we, office of social implications. Well, as we joked about a, a, like a, a while ago, I think um, there's there's no like CBO indicator for civil unrest. You know, right. right. We need a congressional riot office is what you're saying. Um, well, or, you know, actually, no, because <laughs> I'd rather them not see it coming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, um, totally. I mean, speaking of uh, not exactly unrest, but shout out specifically to the um, James Tlaib Dean encampment in Philadelphia, yeah. by the way. It's just a group of people, I think predominantly and run by unhoused people, who have been basically occupying uh, a like public park, like a public space in Philadelphia mm-hmm. for I think right outside of the June. housing authority. Too. Yeah, since yeah. early June, um, have a set of demands. And they, on Friday, the city... The city of Philadelphia basically has said that on Friday they are going to go and clear people out. So if you live in Philadelphia and you listen, go and help support them. Please. Yeah, they mm-hmm. tried earlier this week. They showed up with like bulldozers and a cement mixer and they couldn't. So yeah. the more Fuck people... Fuck that shit. Fern Gully. Fern Gully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, the fact that this is all happening uh, and and that hospitals are laying off workers like nurses 
right now too because they mm-hmm. can't afford to keep people on and like I'm hearing from a lot of nurses and doctors who work in like surge staffing you know they pick up extra hours to pay off their mm-hmm. loans doing surge staffing and so they're on like per diem and they're not being called in mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. the fact that like in the midst of a global public health crisis you even have the possibility for like hospitals to lose bleed staff and possibly close down the line as well Mm-hmm. Um, and all they're doing is like OSHA protections, maybe, maybe Cobra extension, $300 for three months. Like, you've got to be stupid to think that people will not riot if that's yeah. all you do. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that is a line that needs to be repeated or, often. Or to think that like... And and speci- yeah, and specifically, if you if you want to phrase it another way, the best single fucking thing that they could do if they wanted to basically take an urban pacification strategy, right, is right. To, it would just be to like do like do governmental support. Right. There was a thread I right? saw on Twitter of a woman who was in quarantine, and I think it was twi- Taiwan in a hotel, and the government calls her twice a day and sends her food. She had like so much food in her hotel room. She has extensive, you know, they have like an extensive, very paternalistic but very supportive um like government supported quarantine in hotels and if you wanted to if you wanted to to get away with like giving private contracts to everyone you know and and selling the government or whatever then the way to do it would be to like make sure that people can stay in their homes and they're happy and then it's like Mm -hmm. oh well you know we've got to live in robocop world now because how else would we get through (laughs) the coronavirus pandemic without (laughs) daddy amazon who now runs all food delivery services in the united states and everyone gets a ration box right like that would be the smart evil capitalist way to do it but they didn't they did it the stupid way and now it's our move hey if, if the market could truly regulate itself then we would be seeing that since it clearly yeah. can't, you know, <laughs> checkmate assholes. Anyway, yeah. um, should we, yeah, I mean, um, the other thing, the other, well, no, yeah, I guess I'll just say the, the problem with creating like the single most sort of like pop, like just at least from my anic data, like the $600 a week payment specifically is basically the single most popular policy that they have, that, that, that the federal government has enacted in basically anybody I know's lifetime. Despite like, being so absurdly gated by oh, like, yeah. some of the Woefully worst inadequate fucking, yeah. uh it's, yeah completely inadequate like not a good distribution measure however now that they've done it like so many people depend on it that like you're gonna i mean whatever. right right and people and, <laughs> yeah, it's and not to mention people are like oh my god wait the government does stuff for you that's surprise new. yeah <laughs> like that's an interesting if I, I so wait, I jumped through you a bunch of hoops. T- yeah. <laughs> I jumped through a bunch of hoops and then I actually get a thing at the end. I don't I mean it's it's the dumbest thing you could possibly think of to just be like, yeah, and we're going to take it away. Like yeah. Well, I mean, with that, do you think we should move on to maybe a palate cleanser um sure. to wrap us out? I don't know if you guys got a chance to read this. I was waiting for you to read it to me because yeah. I'm a lazy millennial. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Laurie Moore um, wrote a review of what I think is a novel that became a Hulu show. Uh, the review itself is not super important. Um, what is fun about this is that it offers some quite cute critique of the millennial generation. And um, I, I just thought that maybe we, I could read you guys some and you'd, you'd maybe enjoy it. Please. Sure. Hit me. Um, 
Millennials seem wedded to ideas of status and conventional success. They want to infiltrate plutocratic institutions as, quote, Marxists and prized guests. Apparently, millennials are boundary conscious and cannot be touched by anyone, even on the sleeve, without consent. But with consent, will have hookups with total strangers and enact desire in a f- in frightening postures of BDSM, a term, maybe even a thing, not to sound too much like Philip Larkin, that I'm quite sure did not exist prior to 1983. Hey, don't. First of all, <laughs> stop. Stop king shaming me. Number two. Yes, that's they've they've outlined positive consent. Continue. <laughs> Also, like, when, I mean, BDSM did not, was yeah. not created in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Just, I'm surprised you didn't have comments just on because, that. Yeah. <laughs> just because you heard, you heard about it in the context of Foucault no. doesn't mean that he invented it himself. This is, this is Marquis de Sade erasure. Not to sound too much like Philip Larkin drinking myself to death <laughs> and being racist or anything. <laughs> Millennials scan behavior and texts for authorial missteps and outdated cultural memes. Reading immersively on the author's terms might be overpowering and fascistic. I simply don't appreciate how closely millennials read the garbage that I put out. Look, you taught us how—you taught us how to do close reading. You said it was important in our English classes, and now we're just doing it all the time. It is my goddamn right to be internally inconsistent with my arguments and narratives. Free (laughs) Barry Weiss. Oh my god, are you guys ready? Are you guys ready for this? Yeah. Harry Potter is left off the hook since it is comfort food or was until J.K. Rowling's gender identity gaffe on Twitter got her into hot water. Harry Potter okay, also... not a gaff. That uh, yeah. was hate Sorry, speech. It was, it was a gaff. It's like, oh yeah, I just... Whoop, she just up six there. times in a row. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry. Harry Potter also gave young millennials the idea that everyone has a superpower that only has to be discovered, hence the rudderless waiting. Not, not to do too close of a reading, but point of order, I believe that was Animorphs that did that. <laughs> <laughs> Boomers with no Harry Potter, but only books such as Old Yeller, wherein a boy has to kill his beloved rabid dog, were assured that they had nothing remotely like a superpower, only an arsenal of mind-wrecking tasks like shooting your own dog. It's a yeah. really good thing that we didn't read that book when Wait, we were young. Boomers. Wait, everyone had to read Old Yeller, right? In elementary no. school? I did. I mean, I, uh, no. I read it as I did. Good, but yes, I'm just saying the majority of our generation. That was the lesson we were supposed to get from this, that life is a series read of unending... Read the spark notes, wretch- kid kills dog. I don't yeah, know. exactly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> even, even more fundamentally, the, the, the argument is what, like, boomers didn't have pop culture? Is that right. what you're saying? Right, like, and that... No, and that, right, and that, and that they all need therapy, but, <laughs> but they're not getting it. I don't. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So she goes on to write elsewhere among millennials, there is a lingering whiff of Adderall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. You know what? We'll we'll cop to that. Yeah, we'll cop to millennials that. Millennials <laughs> speak so quickly. It is no wonder that boomers seem and sound like idiots even to themselves. (laughs) Cool. As a rule, boomers and their parents seldom tried to please one another. Unlike baby boomers, millennials have a confident understanding of mental illness, pornography, and technology. (laughs) 
I'm, which, I'm, which in the boomer such literary a confident world. such a confident grasp of mental illness that the uh, the boomers who have predominantly set policy over the last decades have resulted in a a beautiful graph that can be put out by Congress as was in that fucking Ways and Means Committee report this week that is just like underserved like populations underserved by mental health and it's like a map of the United States that is just all red across the board and then data from Wisconsin <laughs> is missing yeah. because they wanted to use a private data source i just like oh, no, this, this what what mm-hmm. on earth the generational analysis here is based on what exactly i mean this is um, getting at what like yeah get, getting in a, in, at what in service of what like i mean it's no yeah. there, there 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 are things that are said so broadly that it's very very obvious that the author <clears throat> clearly feels no immediate uh invocation to like defend the position at all to give right. a shred of uh, <laughs> evidence behind the position it's like generational analysis is comfort food for the kind of people who write personals for the new york review of books <laughs> uh, you know former symphony conductor uh you know seeks long island's uh summer home partner for <laughs> You know, turgid conversation and uh, canasta. Right. And generational discourse. I mean, this sentence is truly wild. Can I just, I didn't even get a chance to finish it. Can I start it again? Yeah. Unlike baby boomers, millennials have a confident understanding of mental illness, pornography, and technology, which in the boomer literary world, it is said... Only David Foster Wallace, quote unquote, oh. gets. No, I mean, this is just but like I, I feel like the New York Review is sort of um, it is, is often celebrated as this, you know, uh, a, a publication with a real uh, it doesn't really, you know, within a certain stratum of the population doesn't really matter who you are. Uh, there will be, it is a sort of a general interest publication for a certain economic stratum of the population, but it's very clear that all of her generational critiques are in fact critiques of the sort of literary people of a certain class in a particular generation compared to boomers in general. Mm -hmm. Um, so she's taking, she's taking the, the kindest possible things you could say and, and the broadest possible things you could say about one generation and comparing them to a very narrow slice of another generation. (laughs) Right. I mean, this whole thing is absolute trash, but there was one final section that made me laugh really hard (laughs) that I want to share with you guys. So she goes on to say millennial virtues to an older eye include a nonspecific gentleness and a deep unfeigned and general generationally unprecedented acceptance of gender and sexual diversity. They are intolerant of bullying and have a broad definition of its related infractions. They give priority to vulnerability over courage and demand safe spaces. Um, they say no problem instead of you're welcome. They are not good liars. They seem like nice people, but not normal. They often seem like nice people who are privately doing terrible things to themselves. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 
it also is just like, do you need to talk to somebody specific? Right? Do you have a problem with like one specific person? Like, is there oh, yeah, anyone in Madison, sure. Wisconsin, who can do a community welfare check for Lori Moore? I'm worried about her. <laughs> yeah, this is, or like, we haven't heard she, from her. No, let her be. It's fine. <laughs> does she just has she just been like quarantined with her son or daughter for like too long? Like, is this? <laughs> that's I think that's really what's going Apparently on. Apparently, yeah. she like a yeah. two a.m. This is a two a.m. paragraph. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, apparently I think she's just been like watching Hulu or something this whole time and getting mad online. So it's real productive use of white female energy, right? At least she's not like being abusive to trans people with her white female energy like J.K. Rowling. Well, not explicitly. No, she more she, or less says she, that. Yeah, she, she's, just mean, a tra- she's a turf apologist. This is, I mean, this is basically, yeah, without without like explicitly saying it, she's doing that. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. um, whatever. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I think chicken soup, chicken soup for the uh, turf <laughs> upper west side. So. <laughs> yeah, you um, can't blame this one on New York. She lives in Wisconsin. Yeah, I, the upper but, west side of Madison. Yeah, she did go to Columbia though. So yeah, but I, yeah. I feel like I feel like like some some millennial aged person. She she clearly can't like. It, it, she isn't going to be able to s- sort of reckon with like the diversity of like an entire generation and and needs it boiled down to like s- certain invented tropes that like she is seemingly observed in like the very small group of people who she has contact with in our well, generation. But like exactly. someone, she, I, mean- I just think she needs somebody from this generation to like come to her house and just be like, Hey, I'm actually okay with all my choices. Um, have a nice day. <laughs> like, no, I mean, but like this is okay, but this is the thing. And this is one of the things that's like the most annoying and absurd about this entire generational discourse, but also right. specifically whatever this thing is, yeah. which again, I think, you know, I think functionally this is pretty much not any different than fucking like an avocado toast blog post or whatever yeah you know this what is I mean? just an elaborate the, branding exercise well but the like the the ridiculous thing is like all those people that she's upset about all these people that she's like upset about with like myriad like gender identity expressions mm-hmm. or like you know existed and exist within her generation right exactly <laughs> and because of like because of a number of like social and political factors a lot of them were fucking killed and institutionalized so, and institutionalized yeah. so like so basically what Lori Moore is saying is can you please lock up all the freaks and weirdos I'd like my polite white society we need again, to make sure please. that by the time that millennials get to my age that they are as homogenous cranky and homogenous and yeah and racist as I am <laughs> um no I don't know but I mean it, it does may the bigots survive I mean I guess the last thing I'll say about this is I I think it would be remiss to not uh, if we're if we're talking about this and talking about generational discourse to just bring up the like city of New York the like at NYC of Twitter post today that people have been roasting which is the like they show a graph of like increased uh, COVID spread among youth and they literally say like looking at you millennials and Gen X do better um, Cute. which you know yeah <laughs> In Looking a at you, the greatest generation, quit dying in nursing homes in such large numbers. <laughs> yeah. Do better. Yeah. Well, yeah, in shut a situa- up or we'll all give you our COVID. Well, in a situation where literally like, like the uh, in the 25 to 54 age bracket, employment shot down like 10% in instantaneously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, it's also a similar thing that uh, they opened up the bars again in uh, Chicago, I think. 
But then no sooner had Lori Lightfoot opened up the bars, they're like, and you millennials, don't don't go to the bars. Like, well, you <laughs> you right. open them. I love all like, those, what, those like, posts too by like colleges that's like, or I think there was one by a, a, res, a public health researcher that who was like, you know, safely reopening schools in the fall is going to depend on the ability of students to restrain themselves from socializing. Mm. <laughs> like, sure, great, good, good job, folks. Um, I think this might be a good place to call it a day. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Call it a year. <laughs> call it a year. Nope. <laughs> Nope, it's still 2020. We uh, Tomorrow's eight days, then seven, then six, then five. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of The Death Panel. Uh, if you'd like to support the show and you'd like to get access to the Monday bonus episode and get two episodes a week, become a patron for mm-hmm. $5 a month at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Uh, this Monday we talked about the episode that we released we talked about the disney park oh parks so much reopening mm-hmm. uh, got to hear all of bill's thoughts about epcot tore apart <laughs> happiest place on earth the uh biden sanders unity task force recommendations um for what they include and what they don't um it was a good time and as i mentioned earlier we talked about mckinsey yeah too. so yeah, mckinsey very good combo richly event filled all right so i think with that medicare for all now Solidarity forever and stay alive another week. See you guys later.